Good afternoon, Eastern Washington and fellow Patriots. This is Matt Shea, and welcome to Patriot Radio, broadcasting live from deep inside the heart of the future Liberty State, brought to you once again by On Fire Ministries and the legacy of Dr. Stan Monteith, bringing you the story behind the story. And the news behind the news is not about right or left, it's about right and wrong, about our hope not being a man, but in Jesus Christ, about not ending in prayer, but moving to action. And it's about the gospel of the kingdom. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, so then you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and of, are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling or habitation of God in the Spirit. Today I want to just give a an encouraging word to everybody that I found uh, that most issues that we face in life have to do with vision and actually a lack of vision that when we have vision, there is restraint. When we don't have vision, we cast off restraint. When we have vision, there isn't homelessness. There isn't drug addiction. When we don't have vision, those things begin to flourish. When we do have a vision for this country, the United States of America, we don't have to worry about national defense. We don't have to worry about the economy because those become outgrowths of the vision God has being walked out here on this earth. You know, so many times in the scripture, it talks about books of destiny. Uh, it talks about books that have all of the deeds written in them, talks about books of life. But if you actually read this, David himself, King David, talked about books of destiny, books of vision. God has written his dreams for us, each one of us. And he wants his dreams to come true. And vision, when we see it, it then says in Habakkuk 2 that we need to speak it out or even write it so that that vision has legs and runs. In other words, that vision is born out into the world. And if you just think about this conceptually, we have people that are architects, we have people that, that are engineers, we have people that are writers, and these thoughts are formed, and then they are put into words spoken and or on the written page. And because we are supposed to have spiritual thoughts that bring forth spiritual words, well, where do those spiritual thoughts come from? Where does the mind of Christ come from? Of course, it comes from the throne room. It comes from heaven. But in this world, we have things that are stopping God's will from being done in, in this time. In other words, it's delaying God's will because God's will never be stopped. His will will be done but it delays it. And the Lord wants servants who say yes to him. And I remember hearing uh, from a, a very famous uh, person that 
what happened in their life is the Lord revealed to them that seven other, or maybe six other people had said no. Up until the point where they said yes, because God's will will be done. And he's looking for someone that is after his own heart that says yes to his dreams. Yes to his vision and wants to walk out that vision. Speak it out, write it out, and walk it out for his kingdom. This picture of vision is so critical to understanding the kingdom, but also understanding how the enemy tries to come in and delay God's vision from happening. And here is how it happens. The enemy will try to overwhelm you with the cares and worries of this world. And when you're too wrapped up in the cares and worries of this world, you're consumed by those cares and worries, then you're not seeing his vision. You're not walking out his vision because you're, you're being distracted. And you've heard me say on the show before that distraction is one of the greatest enemies of the sons and daughters of the kingdom. One of the greatest. The, the other way that the enemy tries to come in is through sin. Tries, you know, sin stops God's vision in that time. So in other words, his vision is delayed. Now let me, people are like, well, where is that in the Bible? Well, Adam and Eve, he had an Edenic vision, a vision of the Garden of Eden that Adam was stewarding. And that Edenic vision was stopped for a time. In other words, it was delayed because of sin. Came into the Garden of Eden, they cast him, he was cast, Adam and Eve, they were cast out of the Garden of Eden. They were cast out, and God's vision was delayed, but his vision will still be fulfilled. His will will be done. The the third way that the enemy tries to do this is tries to get you in a place of unforgiveness. Now, this can, in sin also, I mean, can obviously, obviously be born out of the flesh and out of our own actions. It's not just the enemy. But also unforgiveness, where the whispers of the enemy come in, those kind of things, or we just are so bitter towards somebody that we don't have forgiveness, and that unforgiveness quite literally delays God's will from being done. And you're going to ask me how I know this, and I'm going to tell you here in a sec. We see... Here at On Fire Ministries, and if you're here in Spokane, anytime, stop in, 10 o'clock on Sunday, just stop in any day. Usually we're here. Come in and say hi. We see here, though, unforgiveness being a huge thing that has created obstacles in people's lives, obstacles for God's will in somebody's life from being released. Because they are, are just stuck in unforgiveness. And sometimes the unforgiveness is of themselves. And so unforgiveness can be a huge barrier to God's will being done in your life. And if you feel stuck in your life, something's hanging on your life, ask the Lord. There's just some simple prayers here. You know, one is, Lord, search my heart for any wicked way. Show me if there's anything I need to repent of. That's pretty simple. Ask him. Second way is, Lord Jesus, I love you. Thank you for forgiving me. 
of my sins, and I want to forgive others just as you've forgiven me. Who do I need to forgive? Show me who I need to forgive. And then forgive them, and then bless them. This is the key part. A lot of people will forgive, but they won't bless. Bless them. Bless their future, their family, their finances. Bless their going out and their coming in. Bless what they're putting their hands to. Bless their ministry, whatever it is. Actually bless them and break through that unforgiveness. Now, the last way the enemy tries is through direct temptation, trying to get you off course, whispering in your ear, tormenting you, trying to influence you. And I hear this all the time. People say Christians can't have demons, tormenting them. That, that, is, that is so unbiblical. Because the word in Greek, daimonazo, means to influence. It doesn't mean ownership. Like, this is the difference between possession and influence. There is demonic influence in this world that people allow. Netflix, for example, a lot of it, if not all of it, and other demonic influences to come into their lives. So, of course, you can be influenced by evil. So I, people fight about this inside theology, and it's just wrong. The Greek word is clear. It means influence doesn't imply ownership or a, an ownership interest, which would be possession. It implies influence that Satan can influence our thoughts. He can try to put thoughts and images in our mind. He can't read our thoughts, but he can try to influence those things. He can influence our emotions. He can influence our will. We know this is addiction or making tons of bad choices. He can try to influence our identity and tell us that we're worthless and all these kind of things and whisper in our ear and torment us. So, of course, the enemy can try to do this. And so that's the last way the enemy tries to do this so you get caught in the trap of the enemy. And then... And then the destiny in your life is not fulfilled. Now, Matthew 6, I want you to now, with that caveat, that was all the prep, preparation for what I'm about today. Now, I want you, some of you have grown up uh, in the Catholic faith. Some of you have grown up in the Protestant faith. But this should give you a totally different perspective now on what Jesus Christ himself was trying to release in the Lord's Prayer. Watch this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, his will is supposed to be done here on this earth. His destiny, his vision is supposed to be released here on this earth. But then he gets into all the things that try to stop it. Give us this day our daily bread, provision, cares and worries that God is our provider. We don't need to be distracted by the cares and worries of this world. And forgive us our trespasses. Repentance, sin. We need to clean our lives of sin by just simple repentance and, and receiving his forgiveness. And knowing that when he said it's finished, his blood covered it on the cross. And then he says, I love this. Forgive us our trespasses. 
As we forgive those who have trespassed against us. That's the unforgiveness part. And then he deals with the satanic influence. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, if you, if you see, there's also the talk about the kingdom, the power, and the glory as well are his. And when we're in his kingdom, those things are shining through each one of us. And it cannot help but release his destiny in our lives. It can't help but transform everything around us for his glory, his honor, and his praise. And that brings us now to your daily intelligence briefing. Now, I want to talk quickly about two things. Um, there, Knight's Bridge, who's been doing open source intelligence, has begun to release their, their private analyses, but, but more public. So I'm going to go through this pretty quickly so that we, but we, we just get an understanding. And I just kind of want to paint a picture here that right now, from a biblical, a spiritual perspective, we are in a time of release, repositioning, and revelation right now. God is, God is revealing exposing evil. He's positioning his people in places where they're going to be most effective for his kingdom. And he is releasing things in people's lives, blessings, uh, even some changes in people's lives right now in preparation for what's about to happen. Now, I, I am reading these things. I'm seeing these things. And all of it is, is very clearly pointing in a direction that something is in the offing, something is about to happen. And I'm going to talk in that kind of frame, not, again, this is, this is all pointing to we are ready as Christians for what's about to happen, and we are ready to expand his kingdom during this time, because as the enemy is exposed, there is tremendous opportunity to expand the kingdom and to, to watch things come back into alignment with God's plan, his destiny for not only us, but this country. All right. So we're going to go first to China. So North Korea um, fired around 130 artillery shells into maritime buffer zones between it and South Korea, allegedly violating their agreements. The bottom line is North Korea is continuing to escalate in that area of the world. Now, I, I run into people who say, you know, well, it's, it's NATO causing it, right? Well, look, at North Korea has been doing this for years, so they're, they're, they're posturing right now. But again, the globalist plan is to, to make World War III, and I already believe it started, but expand war around the world so that they can try to then implement a one-world government, one-world religion, whatever that even means, and one-world economy. Okay, the one world economy will be run by central bank digital currency. Now, that's that's just a digital currency that is run by a central bank. The precursor to this is the basket of currencies out of Basel, Switzerland, that is essentially right now just a basket of currencies that they kind of nominally use to price things and kind of keep control over things. This is going to become the mechanism 
this basket of currencies is going to become the mechanism with digital currency, so technology on top of it, to essentially create a, a, a one-world bank that is fully bought into by every country in the world. And you'll notice that countries that have gone against a, a one-world bank, like the, and the IMF is an outgrowth of that, the International Monetary Fund, that's like a control me mechanism that's an outgrowth of that. But the Bank of International Settlements, I want everybody to write that down, remember it, the Bank of International Settlements is the mechanism of a one-world bank, okay? So that, that's kind of the center of the one-world economy. The other part of that is to crush the United States so that it is no longer an obstacle to the globalists. All right, economically. That's their plan. We rebuke it in Jesus' name. This, the second part of this is this destabilization in the world through war so that they can say, well, you know, look, if the League of Nations didn't work after World War I, United Nations didn't work after World War II, we're now going to bring in a one-world government after World War III because we have to do this to ensure peace for everybody, and this is the control mechanism. So North Korea is part of this. Many people, and, and I, I lean in this direction, believe that China is going to use North Korea to kick off the broader global war that it already is. Okay. So that's the part on North Korea. All right. The next thing is also coming to us from uh, open source intelligence and Knight's bridge. And for some reason, I got to get, get to the right screen here. For some reason, people are missing what's happening between Russia and the United States. Now Knight's bridge did a fantastic job of bringing this up. Because China is posturing now in the South China Sea, and Indopac News had a great outline of what that plan could possibly be. There's a bunch of maps. I think Sawyer's got it up there. We'll put a link up on the, on the site as well. Indopac News had this you know, Pentag uh, Pentagon report outlines Chinese invasion options for Taiwan. And so it kind of makes us like, forget about what's happening with Russia. Well, I, something really big happened just the other day. So basically, the Russian defense minister, Shoigu, arrived in Belarus unannounced for meetings immediately with his counterpart at the airport to discuss the 1997 defense treaty, which partly established this union state, so this, this kind of neo-Soviet block. And he flew in. They talked about the amendments and signed some new amendments. Shoigu then meets with President Lukashenko of, of Belarus, who had, been, who had taken the day off apparently to play hockey, which, anyway, I won't comment on that. And he came in and they worked till about midnight. Okay, what does all this mean? It looks like the Russians are now invoking that defense treaty and that they want to bring Belarus fully. So right now they've been supplying logistics, uh, transportation hubs, uh, rail, all these kind of things to the Russians. But it looks like the Russians may want to bring Belarus fully into the war in Ukraine. This would very likely 
at least bring Poland to a place of discussion with NATO and increase NATO presence on even more than it is right now on the border between Poland and Belarus. And I would suspect Finland and Russia. And so they're probably going to speed up the ascension of Finland into NATO uh, based on this. All right. The other key thing that came out of the war right now is that hundreds of kilometers into Russia, two Russian air bases were attacked by Ukrainian drones, very likely. And this shows one of them was, I think, 600 kilometers in, which means that that Moscow itself is now in striking distance of Ukrainian drones and that these strategic air bases that have been far behind the lines are within striking distance of Ukraine. That escalates the conflict pretty dramatically because one of those bases is where the Russians had their strategic bombers, the bombers they use with nuclear weapons. Okay, so we know now that this is an escalation in the war there that could be used as a flashpoint for, again, a broader war. Now, why they didn't use the, the, the missiles coming into Poland previously? Probably because the timing wasn't right yet. And you, you heard the real analysis of that here on the show, and nobody's answered that. Why was there not any vertical damage to those tractors? Okay, so you heard you heard that analysis in a previous show, but I want to I want to go to the next step here. That. Not only. Does this escalate things in Russia, but the United States is making some defense procurements publicly that. Are signals that we're getting ready to go to war. So the new B-21 bomber, uh, they unveiled that publicly, which isn't, it isn't normal to do that. And they, they did it as a sixth generation fighter. In other words, a fighter generation that no one else in the world has. But then another one that caught my attention just this morning was there is a procurement of a, a truck-based launcher system that can not only launch Typhoon missiles, but it can launch air defense, anti-ship missiles. Okay, that's, that's the one. A- and air defense. So it can be used as a coastal defense system. Truck-based, which, which is what has worked in Ukraine with the HIMARS system, is they'll fire and then they move. Well, this would work ex- extraordinarily well as a coastal defense system, not only as anti-ship, but is anti-missile. So you could have thousands of these trucks in a coastal defense system against, for example, an invasion by China of Taiwan or an invasion of China into Alaska or the Philippines. So the United States unveiled this, that I think Lockheed Martin was who it is, that delivered it to the U.S. or is delivering it this by this Friday. And so the United States is procuring defense systems for its allies that are very clearly not only aimed at coastal defense, but at air defense that are movable and hard to destroy, which means we're preparing for a war right now. This isn't, these types of systems are preparing for an active war. So 
Um, also, you can read about some of that. I think Forward Observer had that as well. Um, you can read through uh, through some of that. All right, I want to also bring up the other big event that happened on the now now we're moving from the international front to the national front. Okay, back in 2013, there was something called the Metcalf sniper attack. Now, the Metcalf sniper attack was in Northern California. It was a Metcalf uh, power substation that was intentionally attacked. And I want to go through what happened there so we can kind of talk about what just happened in Moore County in North Carolina. So in at, at the Metcalf substation, essentially a squad of people went to the substation to pre-recon. In other words, they had been there before, sought out the most advantageous firing positions, went there, had one or two people go into a manhole cover, go underground, and cut all the cables to the substation except one. And that was the reporting cable from the substation back to the main administration office, the main administration computer system. So they cut those. The one cable is still left. So that was intentional to see what the reaction time was between what was about to happen and the reaction time of them shutting the power station down. Watch this. They then went to these recon, these pre-recon firing positions. They fired at a specific thing in the substation so that the high voltage transformer would overheat and it would bring the entire substation down. Well, before that happened, that, that line transmitted that the high voltage transformer was overheating and they shut down the whole substation. Now, had that substation gone down and that high voltage transformer been destroyed, Northern California would have been without power for months, potentially, because high voltage transformers are made to specification for that substation and are made only in a couple countries, North Korea, Germany, and I think Norway may do it now too, but it takes months for these things to be produced. And so therefore it is a strategic risk. Now, most of these substations, you can see them with the naked eye, they're locked. It's a padlock on a chain link fence. Some have more than that, but a lot of them is just a padlock on a chain link fence. It's incredible. So at the same time of the Metcalf sniper attack, Dr. Peter Vincent Pry, who's, who was on the show, just passed away this year, told us that flying over from a south-facing orbit, in other words, an orbit that our enemies use that comes up where we don't have an early warning system, a south-orbiting satellite came right over Washington, D.C. at the exact time of the Metcalf sniper attack. So many experts believe, and myself included, that this was a test of U.S. defense systems. So now with that in mind, there's all been all the speculation about Moore County, North Carolina. So I'm going to talk about that from just a particular standpoint, because there have been incidents this year and I'm going to get into that right now. 
There have been incidents this year that have really, I think, I think there's been nine incidents that have really kind of cued us that something is happening against our electrical grid. So, Moore County, 40,000 people have no power right now. That Those power uh, substations were attacked. This tells us all that we need to be prepared. More on this in the next show. I really appreciate everybody and all of your support. This is Matt Shea. That's the briefing. Remember, the antidote to dependency and socialism is to be a God-fearing, self-reliant, freedom-loving American. And our guest today is Bill Federer in studio here at Patriot Radio. Bill Federer is a teacher, a researcher of America's noble Christian heritage, AmericanMinute.com, AmericanMinute.com, and really appreciate the fact that he is unapologetic of the fact that God, Jesus Christ, Christianity has made America great. Bill, thanks for joining me today on Patriot Radio. How are you doing? It's great to be with you. So let's talk a little bit about America's Christian heritage, particularly we were talking a little bit before the show about pietism and kind of the influence that pietism may negatively have today as far as allowing some of the evil we're seeing in this country continue to pervade our culture. Yeah, so a little background. Uh, Western Europe was all Catholic, and then the Reformation starts in 1517, and then the Muslims invade with um, the Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent surrounding Vienna, Austria in 1529. And so the Catholic Holy Roman Emperor, the King of Spain, does the Peace of Augsburg in 1555, which allows every king to decide what's going to be believed in his kingdom. So now you have Europe going from just being Catholic to Northern Germany and Sweden being Lutheran and England being Anglican and Scotland being Presbyterian and Holland being Dutch Reform and Switzerland being Calvinist and Italy, Spain, France, Austria, Poland staying Catholic and Serbia was Serbian Orthodox. And, and it was one denomination per country rather than one denomination per continent. And But if you didn't believe the way your king did, you were persecuted and you fled. And so there's this mass migration of people over the 1600s, shifting from one country to another simply for conscience sake. And those were the ones that spilled over and founded colonies in America. And so I read through every charter of, of every colony. Every colony was started by a different Christian denomination. So Virginia was Anglican, Massachusetts was Puritan, Rhode Island was Baptist, Maryland was originally Catholic, Connecticut and New Hampshire were Congregationalist, New York was Dutch Reformed, Delaware and New Jersey were Swedish Lutheran, and Pennsylvania Quaker, and they did not get along, and they tar and feather each other, but then they all had to work together against the King of England. And after the Revolution, their attitude changed to we may not always agree on religion, but you were willing to fight and die for my freedom. I need to let you practice your faith. And so uh, in 1776, uh, you had nine of the state constitutions required office holders to be Protestant Christians. Mm. And three said all you had to do was be a plain Christian. And then one actually had zero religious requirements. Rhode Island founded by Baptists. And their attitude was, if you required someone to be a Christian to hold office, they could say they were just to get elected, even if they weren't, and that would be hypocritical. So just pick the best Christian person you know. Um, but you read through South Carolina, North Carolina, 
for New Jersey, New Hampshire, they all required office holders to be Protestant Christians. And, um, and then the liberal ones was Delaware. All you had to do was to hold office was to say, I believe in God the Father, Jesus Christ is the only Son, the Holy Ghost, one God bless forevermore. And you think that's liberal? Yeah, because you could be Catholic and Protestant and say, I believe in the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Yeah. And then another liberal state was Pennsylvania. Ben Franklin signed its constitution, and it said all he had to do to hold public office was to acknowledge God, the creator and governor of the universe, the rewarder of the good, the punisher of the wicked, and acknowledge the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be given by divine inspiration. So in other words, you not only had to lay your hand on a Bible to swear in office, you had to swear you believed in the Bible in order to hold office. And it was Ben Franklin that signed that. And so uh, that's 1776. In the early 1800s, there's an Irish potato famine. Millions of Irish Catholics come to America. And at first, they're persecuted. Uh, and then finally, they get accommodated. So uh, originally, only three states let Catholics in, Maryland, Pennsylvania, New York. But then after this Irish potato famine, you had different states changing from requiring you to be a Protestant to just being a Christian. Mm -hmm. So it was in 1835, North Carolina changed from requiring Protestant to just being Christian. And, um, and then you had a persecution of Jews in Bavaria, and a quarter of a million Jews come to America. So in 1851, Maryland changed its state constitution from requiring you to be a Christian to being a Christian, and if the party shall profess to be a Jew, the declaration shall be of a belief in a future state of rewards and punishments. So as of 1851, you could hold office in Maryland if you were a Christian or a Jew. And people say, how could they do that with, with, with separation of church and state? Easy, separation of church and state was simply to keep the federal government out of the state business. And, um, and then you, after the Civil War, many states rewrote their constitutions to... Uh, say all you had to do was believe in God to hold office. And then you get up to, oh, in 1947, a, a bus rides. Uh, some uh, Catholic students were getting bus rides to their school, and the Protestant state tried to stop them. And the Supreme Court, Hugo Black, in the Everson case, said the bus rides continue, but now religion is going to be under the federal government, not the states. And so we began to see... a. Just 10 years later, in 1957, the Washington Ethical Society wants tax-exempt status as a religious organization. And um, the Supreme Court said that ethical culture is now a religion. And then in 1960, uh, a guy named Torcaso wanted to be a notary in Maryland but didn't want to say, so help me God. And the Supreme Court said that there are new religions which do not acknowledge a supreme being, and among these are secular humanism. And so secular humanism is not considered a religion. But then during the Vietnam War, you had uh, some draft dodgers wanting to claim religious conscientious objector status as atheists, Elliot Welsh. And um, so the Supreme Court said, when someone holds beliefs with the same conviction as those who believe in a traditional deity, to that person, those beliefs constitute their religion. So now atheism is a religion. And so to not prefer one religion over another, the federal government kicks God out, which ironically is establishing by their own definition, the religion of atheism. So we start from a country, people fleeing here, wanting the freedom to practice our Christian faith, to them tolerating other Christians and then tolerating first Protestants and Catholics and Jews and then tolerating everybody. And now everybody's tolerated except 
the Christians and the people that hold those those original traditional Christian faith beliefs. So uh, I wrote a book called Backfired where I track this through. Well, I've had America's God and country for a very long time, and just the quotes from the Founding Fathers make it crystal clear that that was their intent at the beginning, that Christianity was at the center of the country. And, and that's because Jesus Christ was at the center of those Founding Fathers' hearts and those pastors at that time. But there's, there's come out of separation of church and state, a, a twisting of that literally on its head, and also the idea that we should never now, as Christians, be involved in politics. That's the realm of dirty stuff. We're Christians. We need to stay in our lane. And if you get involved in politics, that's almost considered a sin by some people. I want you to talk about kind of where that came from, that whole idea, and just how, in well, I'll say insidious it is in our society today. Right. That's a very good question. So in the 1600s, you had Calvinist-based pastors coming over, and they had a plan, and it was a way to have a government without a king. And so it's a covenant form of government where people are um, covenanted together, uh, and they get rights from God, and they take care of their neighbor voluntarily because they're doing it as unto God, sort of like a triangle. And... Uh, and so their plan worked, and they got plan-focused. And so they're called old lights, and they had pastors in their churches founding communities. So you had a pastor, Roger Williams, and his church founded Providence, Rhode Island, and the First Baptist Church in America. And you have a pastor, Thomas Hooker, and his church found Hartford, Connecticut. And then um, Pastor John Wheelwright and his church found Exeter, New Hampshire. And, and this is unique on planet Earth. At this time, you have Russian czars, Chinese emperors, Indian maharajas, African chieftains, Muslim sultans, kings of Spain, France, Austria. The whole world is ruled top-down by kings primarily. And here in New England, you got this little experiment, a little greenhouse, where you have pastors and their churches, founding communities. And it's worth noting the type of church government. So in Europe, most of the countries... Uh, had a form of church government that was hierarchical, like in England. The king was actually the head of the Anglican church. And so your relationship with God is through this church structure of the king, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Archbishop of York, the deaneries and vicars and curates, and um, uh, this hierarchy. Well, in Switzerland, you had John Calvin, and he pioneered uh, a congregational form of church government that went back to ancient Israel. The scenario was the uh, Catherine de' Medici, Queen of France, uh, has the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, and they kill like 30,000 Protestants. And so the idea was, okay, divine right of kings, we're supposed to obey the king, but what if the king actually wants to kill you <laughs> and massacre you? Are you just supposed to submit? And so these Calvinists began to explore this concept of if the king is not obeying God, he unkings himself. It's like children obey the parents, but if the parent is telling the kid, go out, sell yourself into prostitution and kill your neighbor, is the kid supposed to obey the parent? No. You obey the parent as long as the parent's telling you to do something that lines up with God's word. You obey the king as long as the king is lined up with God's word. But when the king stops obeying God's word, then he unkings himself. And so this is John Calvin's contribution. 
And so these Calvinist scholars were actually nicknamed Christian Hebraists because they studied the Hebrew history of that first 400 years out of Egypt before King Saul. So around 1400 BC, Israel comes out of Egypt. They come into the promised land and for 400 years, no king. And it it was a system that worked because every single citizen was taught the law and they were all personally accountable to God to follow the law. And it worked until the priest stopped teaching the law. And that's when they all go to Samuel the prophet and they say, we want to be like the other countries. We want a king. And they got King Saul. But this pre-King Saul period is what the Calvinist Puritans look to. The king of England, he looked to the post-King Saul period. So King Saul's the dividing point. Yeah. So these kings of Europe would say, hey, I'm the anointed king, like like Saul was anointed. But these Calvinist Puritans would say, no, 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 we're the 400 years before King Saul. The original plan where God put the people in charge and everyone's taught the law. And so that's why they taught Hebrew at Yale and Harvard. And they took a congregational form of church government versus the hierarchical government. So the hierarchical government for church is clergy laity. Clergy does all the ministry and the laity is lazy and watches. The congregational model of church government comes from the word ecclesia or ecclesia. Ek means out of, ecclesia means a calling. And in Athens, they had 6,000 citizens and they would call them out of their homes to the Agora marketplace and they would discuss what needs to be done to take care of their city. And so Jesus uses this word where he says, upon this rock, I'll build my church. But actually in Greek, it's upon this rock, I'll build my ecclesia. Mm -hmm. And it's referencing the body, that everybody's supposed to be involved, an eye, an ear, a foot, somebody. And the pastor's job is to get everybody to have their own relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ that died on the cross to pay for their sins. And then um, to get them to plug into the body and do something. Uh, nursery, children's church, junior high, anything that's alive takes in and gives out. Any muscle to grow has to be exercised. If you're going to be a, that's why I hated the COVID response so much because it was changing church structure Mm -hmm. from a congregational model to a hierarchical model, right? Your relationship with God is through the screen. You're listening to the pastor. He's given a great message, but um, uh, you hear the message, but what are you going to do? Witness to your pillow? Uh, You know, you disciple your your dinner plate, you know, no, you, you need to be around other people. You, yeah. you take in and you give out. And so the congregational model is the church gets together. The pastor, yes, gives a really good message, but ministry takes place. The, the older lady sees the younger mom. She's all worried and says, what's wrong, honey? Well, the kids and the husband and the job and this and that, and she prays for her, you know? And then the older guy sees the younger guy and says, hey, we're all getting together on Tuesday night, a little men's Bible study, you know? And there's ministry taking place without the pastor having to do it. It's the body ministering to itself. Well, so this is what these New England pastors did. These Roger Williams, these Thomas Hookers, and and they basically took their church model of government and they made it their community model of government. Mm -hmm. Everybody's involved in church. Everybody's involved in the community. They actually had one building called the Meeting House. And that's where the pastor would teach the Bible, but that's also where they would get together and do their city business. The word synagogue means meeting house, right? It's where the rabbi would teach the law, and that's where they would get together and do their city business. I mean, why build a separate building just to talk about a different topic, (laughs) right? You can have a a hundred buildings for a hundred topics? No. Um, And so when the Revolutionary War starts, the British send over a military governor named Thomas Gage, 
and he outlaws meeting houses. We don't need the people meeting and discussing. You just do the government mandates. Whatever the government mandates, you just do. Just be a uh, a zombie and do whatever you're told. We don't want your input. We don't want you to, to sit around and talk about what, what your ideas are. And, um, and so that was the top down versus the bottom up. But in America, we basically drew our government, we the people, from the New England pastors who got it from the Bible, what part of the Bible that first 400 years out of Egypt before King Saul. It was called the Hebrew Republic. And these Calvinist scholars were called Christian Hebraists. Look it up. I mean, it's a. I wrote, I wrote about this in a book called Who is the King in America? Who is the king indeed? King Jesus. There is no king but Jesus. <laughs> now, I know some people try to argue that that was never really said, but I think that there is pretty ample historic evidence that that's what they believed indeed. Let's talk a little bit about this idea that the temple of the Holy Spirit, the body of the believers, the government of the United States, and this taking of, of Moses and what happened where all of a sudden you've got 70 people to represent all of the different tribes and, and families and clans. They come together. That's actually the, the real key place in the Old Testament where Holy Spirit comes down on them during that appointing period. Now, there are some people right now today that say all that was in the past that can't stand today. We can't have that today. There's separation of church and state today. And oh, by the way, your Christian brothers down the street, they say you can't get involved in government because those two things should be kept separate, even in the Bible. How do you respond to this? Because I really believe this apathy and this abdication has led to the, the place where we're at in the United States, where we have the castration of children. We've got rampant evil just on the streets. Crime is rising. All of these other things are coming in, and it's because the Christians have stood down. Yeah, you bring out some really good points. And so... Uh, in answering that, uh, I'll go back to history. So for the first, the 1600s, the predominant wave of pastors and churches into America are Calvinist-based, and their attitude was God has a plan for your life, marriage, family, church, government, find out what the plan is, put it into place. Early 1700s, you begin to have a different wave of pastors into America, and they are the German Lutheran pietists. Where do they come from? So Martin Luther starts the Reformation in 1517. And he had a personal revelation that the just shall live by faith. So personal to him, he's willing to stand up to the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor and say, unless you can prove me wrong from Scripture, here I stand, so help me God. Very personal to him. But some German princes wanted to break away from Rome, and so they say, this is our chance, kingdom of mine, you're all now Lutheran. And the people in the kingdom say, okay, okay, we're Lutheran. Uh, what do we believe? <laughs> and so for those people in the kingdom, it's not the same personal revelation Martin Luther had. It's just going along with the new state doctrine. And so our revival movement starts called pietism. It says being a Christian is more than a state doctrine. You have to have an experience with Jesus. And when you do, your life will change. And you won't do the worldly things you used to do, like go to bars and brothels and loot theater and get involved in government. Wait, what was that last uh, thing? Yeah. Yeah, government's filled full of worldly people. So if you're really a Christian, you're not going to be involved. And there were even German princes that donated money to the pietists so they would teach their people not to get involved in the prince's business. And so it developed into the Lutheran concept of the two circles, the two kingdoms, the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of the church, and the two don't touch. And four centuries of that allowed Hitler to seize power. And they're putting Jews on train cars, 
and they're screaming as they're going by a church, and the church's response was, well, that's the government doing that. We can't do anything because it's the government circle, and we're in the church circle, so let's just sing praise songs louder to Jesus. I mean, does anybody see something wrong with that picture? And so in America, in the 1700s, you had these German Lutheran pietists coming to America. One of the famous ones is Count Ludwig von Zinzendorf. He starts a movement around 1627, it's these uh, Moravian young missionaries, and uh, they're going all around the world. And some of them are on a boat going to Georgia. And on the boat is the Wesley brothers, John and Charles. There's a storm. The Wesleys are panicking, and they go where the Moravians are, and they're just singing praise songs. And the Wesleys are like, uh, they know Jesus better than we know Jesus. The Wesleys sort of fail, and then they go back to England, and they meet some more Moravians who invite them to a prayer meeting, and they pray all night long. And they... Uh, John Wesley writes that he felt his heart strangely warmed. And they were explaining the uh, Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. And he said, um, as he was reading, I, I felt that I did believe that Jesus uh, paid for my sins, even mine. And, uh, and it, it was clear that John Wesley had a personal experience with the Lord. And so John Wesley goes and lives with the Moravians over there in Germany for eight months, calls it the religion of the heart, comes back to England and starts the Methodist revival movement that says, look, being a Christian is more than Anglican doctrine. You have to have experience with Jesus. He gets his friend involved, uh, George Whitfield, who preaches up and down the American colonies seven times, spreading the Great Awakening revival, saying it's more than just a doctrine. You have to have an experience with Jesus. And so they were called new lights. So the, the first century, the Calvinist Puritans, they're called old lights because they're so plan-focused. They're sort of by this time dry and structured and sort of spiritually dead. And the new lights come in, and they're all excited and a little bit emotional, but we're emotional creatures, and so that's okay. Um, but um, they had this ditch on the side of the road that says if you really have a personal experience with Jesus, you're not going to be involved in government. That's where you get this idea that it's a little holier not to be involved in government. Like, you know, it's like I'm a little more spiritual than you are because I'm not involved. And and you're you're a little less spiritual. You're a little more carnal because you're still involved in worldly things. And I, I just focus on the gospel. I'm one. I'm purer than you are. I'm focusing on the gospel. And, and you're still for, forget the, the scripture that says a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Amen. But there's a middle of the road. The middle of the road is, yes, it is a personal experience with Jesus, but you want to have a country where your kids can have a personal experience with Jesus. Because if you're not involved, they're going to outlaw the gospel, right? I mean, they're going to want to tell you that certain things are not sin and other things are, you know, and if there's no sin, you don't need a savior. They're going to undermine the gospel. Then they're going to say it's hateful for you to speak the scriptures. And then, uh, you know, I, I was um, talking with someone from, uh, you know, communist countries and they're like, it's, it's a, it's, you're put in a labor camp if you're caught preaching the gospel. Yeah. Or in, in Islamic countries, it's the death penalty if you're caught preaching the gospel. And so, uh, and then in China, they're actually telling them that you can't preach the first two commandments. You know, I'm the Lord, the God, that shall know the God before me. Why? Because the government wants to be first. They're telling them they can't preach from the book of Revelation. They don't want you looking forward to a, a different, you know, redemption government. They, they <laughs> want to be the, the, the heaven on earth. And, and they want to, in China, they tell them you, you can't preach the gospel to anybody under 18 years old. I mean, they're going to limit everything. And um, uh, and if the LGBT agenda has its way, 
you know, the first open lesbian mayor of Houston uh, wanted to subpoena all the sermons and all the text messages and emails of all the pastors in Houston. Yes. And I, I finally was Pastor Steve Riggle. He had the, the biggest church in Houston and um, like 20,000 members. And, and, um, and so they finally got involved and voted that mayor out. But um, so, yes, you want to have a personal relationship with Jesus, but you want your kids to be able to have it too. And so I tell people the most important thing is to bring people to Christ, but the second most important thing is to preserve the freedom to do the most important thing. It is. And who is the government in the United States of America? Yeah, it's we the people, and the politicians are the servants. So Romans 13, well, you got to submit to the government. It's like uh, politicians are our servants. You hire them, you fire them. So who's the ultimate authority in America? It's we the people. And so it'd be silly for a king to have to obey his janitor, you know. <laughs> you know, you, know, you, you it, and, and so what do you do with people that think it's more spiritual not to be involved? I ask them, what do you do with Numbers chapter 30? It's the silence equals consent chapter. Half dozen scenarios. One is if a daughter still living in her father's house binds herself with a vow. In the day the father hears that if he's silent, her vows stand. But if he disallows it, she's released from the vow. The Lord forgives her. That's come down to us as vows in a wedding ceremony. And the pastor tells the congregation, if you're silent, you're giving consent to the wedding. And so if a church member's silence gives consent to wedding vows, it gives consent to other things. If they're killing kids and the church members know about it and they're silent, they're giving consent to killing kids. If they try to guilt trip Christians into being more Christian than Jesus. I said, okay, if you're Christian, you tolerate anything and everything. You're so Christian, you just tolerate anything, and you'll tolerate them teaching the transcendent to kids. Well, question, would Jesus teach that? Jesus said in the beginning, God made a male and female. So you're telling me if I'm really Christian, I'll let him teach something Jesus would never teach. So if I'm really Christian, I won't act like Christ. Yet Jesus said, if you are silent, if you allow one of these little ones that believes me to stumble, better that a millstone be put around your neck and be thrown in the depths of the sea. So all these people that think they're being spiritual by not getting involved, by their silence, they're inviting the judgment of God on their heads. It's going to be a rude awakening. It will be a rude awakening. And Bill, I just want to go after one of the the biggest objections that I have heard from people, and it's this. You're saying, basically, we want a theocracy. We should go back to a theocracy. We've actually evolved beyond theocratic things. You say we want a theocracy. How can you possibly justify a government like that of Iran? Right? This is literally what I hear. How, how do you respond to that? Yeah, they know nothing about American history. America's founders all fled from theocracy. That's right. You had William Tyndall burnt at the stake. You had you know all these different you know, martyrs being burnt at the stake by their kings. And they're like, no, we believe in freedom of conscience. Right? So you read... The King of England passed the, uh, the Five Mile Act. If you're caught preaching within five miles of a town without approval of the government, you're a criminal. They passed the Conventicle Act. If you're meeting with five people in your home and you've not cleared it with the government, you're a criminal. They even, dict- they even said you can't make up your own prayers. Uh, you could make up a prayer that's wrong, so the government wrote all the possible prayers down, printed them in a book, a common prayer. You want to pray, just open it to the right page and read the prayer. And if you're caught making up your own prayers. The government breaks in, the FBI comes in, drags you away, brings you to a hearing room, sort of January 6th hearing room called the Star Chamber. 
and they twist your arm and make you confess to stuff you didn't do, and they brand you on the face as a heretic, and then they put you in a cell and let you waste away for days, weeks, months, years. One of the people that was in jail for 12 years was John Bunyan, and he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And these were the people that fled from England to America, to New England, uh, because they wanted to have the freedom of conscience. So what our country is based on is the opposite of a theocracy. They do not want, we do not want a top-down anything. We want it bottom-up, freedom of conscience, government from the consent of the governed. Let the people, the pastor's job is to present the gospel, and then it's the people's job to express their views to their elected representatives, right, to elect them. And so we want the opposite of a theocracy. We don't want top-down, we want bottom-up. We don't want a secular humanist theocracy, which is really what they're advocating for. Yeah, they want to set up a woke nationalism. Right. (laughs) That's exactly it. In the last minute that we have left, if you could, please tell the listeners, everybody watching, where they can go to get more information and also where they can get your books. Oh, thank you. My website's AmericanMinute.com, AmericanMinute.com. And uh, one of the books I talked about today is Who is the King in America and Who are the Consulars to the King? And... You know, and the, the freedom of conscience is based on the idea that God is love. He wants you to love him back. But love, by definition, must be voluntary. The moment it's forced, it evaporates. And so for you to love God, you have to be able to love without being coerced. And so our founders wanted to set up an atmosphere where you are not coerced by the government one way or the other. But they wanted to have you have the freedom so that you can believe. And that is the foundation of America. Bill Federer, thank you so much for joining me on Patriot Radio today here at On Fire Ministries. God bless you. Thank you for all your hard work over all these years. It's impacted so many people. It's been such a blessing. Keep up the fight. Well, thank you. This is Matt Shea. May God bless all of you. And may he continue to make this generation the greatest one. Keep up the fight.